Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 16. I was wondering this morning as I was thinking about our Sunday worship, why are you here? I mean, obviously we think about that in our minds and we come to the quick probably answer in our minds that it's Sunday. It's the day of the week. We come together. We come to the church. We hear a message spoken or a Sunday school class taught. And I wonder sometimes if we really think that the reason we're here is because God wants us here. Providentially and supernaturally, even through the orchestration of circumstances in life and His providential care of His people, God has orchestrated every event in life for today. You're here because God wants you here. For whatever reason, there are things this morning that God wants you to hear. And we find ourselves this morning in Revelation chapter 16. Beginning in verse 12, the Apostle John records for us and for our hearing these words. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. Its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. We've reached the end. After these two final judgments take place, Jesus Christ returns to the earth to reign for a thousand years. Chapter 17 and 18 will give us a closer look at the details 
of these particular two judgments upon the kingdom of the beast, somewhat kind of another parenthetical in-looking or, or more magnified look at what's taking place. And when we get to chapter 19, Christ returns to rule. So in the timeline, if you will, of God's redemptive plan, as we have been studying it throughout this book, following Christ's return and rule comes the final judgment of Satan himself, along with all who have rejected Christ, and then God recreates heaven and earth. What God spoke into existence and who upholds it by the word of his power will in one moment recreate it all to a new heaven and a new earth in which all who know him through Christ will dwell forever and ever and ever. Sometimes we fret about the world we live in as if things are getting worse and worse. Well, I can assure you they are and they're going to get a whole lot worse. And then God will recreate it all. So as far as the seven-year tribulation goes in our own study, by way of its chronology, it ends in verse 21. The unmixed wrath of God, as verse 17 says, is done. And I have to say, I'm thankful. Uh, If for no other reason that it has been horrific and it has been graphic to watch it unfold as God has given us a glimpse into it through the eyes of John and its disclosure began all the way back for us in chapter 6. Six sealed judgments as God began to unfold His wrath upon man. We have been watching this for some time. I'm sure... Many of you in your own minds and your own hearts have been saying, when is this going to end? We've been watching it for some time, and I think sometimes even in ourselves, there is certainly in all of us as humans a bizarre characteristic to not turn away when tragedy happens. I mean, you're driving down the road. I come from California. There's six lanes on each side of the highway. Drive down the road and an accident happens. There's a traffic scene. And when you get by the wreckage, what do you do? Wow, let me check out. Let me go see what happened. There's some bizarre characteristic within our humanity that wants to look at the tragedy. We, we look at the traffic accidents. We, we look at the wreckage. Hundreds upon thousands of people flock to to racetracks around our country in hopes of a wreck. I don't think they want to see someone hurt, but they certainly want to see what happens when things hit walls at high speeds. This is a curiosity. It's a kind of wonder that we have. I, I have cable TV in my house, and I like to watch the Discovery Channel from time to time, and and if you watch the Discovery Channel, you're well aware that this week is Shark Week, or last week was, I should say. Why do people watch Shark Week? Why did I like to watch Shark Week? Because it's bizarre. It's, It's awesome. It's a part of creation, but these animals can destroy things in a moment. Is this kind of bizarre thing that we like to see. Wreckage gets 
interesting. But when the wreckage gets so graphic, we, we maybe then will turn away. And in Revelation, folks, we have been turning away a lot. We've been turning away a lot. Because there is nothing we can compare any of this to. It has been very graphic. And now we've reached the end. And on the surface, in just reading from verse 12 through verse 21, it seems rather anticlimactic. These two judgments don't seem all that horrific, really, even if verse 21 says it was extremely severe. But we have to remember that God has a purpose in all of this. As He prepares the way for His Son's return. And while these two judgments don't seem, on the surface at least, that severe, they are the most severe. Because they include the final battle of the great day of God the Almighty. As verse 14 tells us. That will be a day unlike any day this world has ever seen. And millions upon millions will perish under God's wrath. Unprecedented disaster of which all disasters throughout history have simply been a precursor and a look towards. Anytime there's a disaster that hits our world, it simply is a glimpse into the very future of the horrific disaster that will come upon mankind. Now you must remember last time when we were together, we noted there is a a kind of separation that takes place within all of the judgments and the, the, set, the groupings of three sevens. You have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. And within those groupings, there seems to be a separation that takes place within those two groups of judgments within that group of seven. There's a, a grouping of four and then this grouping of three. And here, one of those groups of judgments uh, indirectly affects the Antichrist. And we saw that already in the first Four, and then the other group directly affects the Antichrist. So in the first four, you had the tumorous source that took place under bowl number one in verse two. And then you have this next judgment that falls upon the sea and the sea is turned to blood like a dead man. And under that judgment, uh, all of the water in the oceans is blood like. And so too then in the next one, the fresh water is affected. The springs of waters, they and the rivers, they become blood under that uh, judgment. And then the fourth judgment affects the sun. And the sun is turned up so that its heat is allowed to scorch men with fire, it says in verse 8. And they are severely burned. All of those indirectly affect the Antichrist and those who worship him. In other words, their judgments upon other things other than the source themselves. And those judgments upon the other things have an indirect effect upon men. But then these last, as we began to look at last time, are direct judgments against and upon the Antichrist. First, under judgment number five, as we looked at last time, this was his kingdom being darkened. Verses 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. Kingdom, his, his place of rule, his 
place of authority, the seat of his government, was shown to be unable to thwart the power of God at all, and God supernaturally thrust it into darkness. Satan being the angel of light, being the one who's orchestrating all of this sin, and these the beast and the false prophet are both the puppets of puppets of his on earth cannot thwart even God himself. So what was already true within the heart of Antichrist, this moral darkness in him and all of those who worship him, now becomes pictured in the complete darkness engulfing his entire kingdom. And the result is another attempt at simply blaming God. They blaspheme God because of their pains and because of their sores, and they do not repent of their deeds. And last time I said, this is somewhat of a pathology of sin. This is what sin does. This is how sin operates as it goes on in the heart. If it isn't dealt with through an acknowledgement of sin, through an ownership of sin, that, that we who are sinners are the ones who are sinning, that it isn't God's fault, and if there is no repentance of those things, it always and inevitably leads to the end result where it will blame God. You will not deal with sin, you will become one who blames God for your sin. This is the way it's been ever since the beginning. Adam, even himself, the first man blamed God for the sin. He said, God, it was this woman you gave me. It's not my fault, God. That's not why I sinned. The reason I sinned, I wouldn't have sinned, God, if you didn't give me this woman. It's your fault. That's what sin does. So here, even in... The tribulation, this is a display of the victim mentality gone wild. Mankind holding God accountable for their suffering as if they didn't deserve it. And we know that's not true. We know man deserves it because it says it even in this text in verse 6 that God pours this out. He gives them blood to drink. And they deserve it. Why? Because God, verse 5, is righteous. Because God is holy. Because God is almighty. He is true and righteous. And His judgments are always right. Mankind deserves exactly what mankind gets. Because mankind has rejected the grace of God. Now, here in our text, come these final two judgments. And they seem rather, like I said, anticlimactic. And yet God is preparing the way for Christ to come. And so when we think about that, we must not relegate these, these last two to, to, to being lesser, but rather this being the very monumental moment in God's plan. One man put it this way, quote, The Holy Land, that is Israel, has been chosen by God as the stage upon which two crucial events take place. One on a mountain named Calvary and the other at Armageddon. Both are bloodbaths. Both are the action of wrath upon sin. Both are brought about by God's enemies. And from each comes a supper. One is a supper of remembrance for the people of God, and the other a supper of retribution upon those who reject God. At Calvary there rang up to the gates of heaven a victorious cry, It is finished. 
at Armageddon, there will ring down to the earth the answer, it is done, unquote. I think he's right. At Calvary, God provided forgiveness and grace for sinners. But at Armageddon, there is only destruction for sinners. No grace, no mercy, no salvation. Calvary, Jesus Christ died for sinners. But at the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, sinners will die for their sin. At the cross, there is saving judgment. And yet, here, there is only damning judgment. We saw in bowl number five, the Antichrist kingdom was darkened. In bowl number six, his power or his influence is disclosed. Disclosed simply, it's uncovered. Look at what verse 12 says. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Here we have... The what that takes place and the why that it takes place. The river is dried up. That's the what takes place. The river is dried up so that, you notice that in the verse, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. That's the why it happens. So when you look at verses 13 through 16, you read about the means through which God uses to bring those kings from the east. And you notice that it is the very beast himself. It is the very false prophet himself under the guise of demons that entice the kings from the east to come. In other words, his influence is now uncovered. So let's just walk through this so that we can have a better understanding of what's happening for ourselves. First it says, when the bowl is poured out, verse 12, the great river Euphrates is dried up. The river Euphrates has already played a part in the tribulation period. You may remember back in chapter 9 and verse 14, when the sixth angel who had the trumpet blew it, there was a voice that you heard that, said, release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. Remember that? Under the sixth trumpet. They were, when they were released, there was a 200 million man force army that was assembled for war. Now, the judgment here is affecting the river itself. Before, it was to call these evil angels to assemble this army. Now the river is being affected itself. It's being dried up. Even today, this is a massive river. You notice here in verse 12, the word great again. This word I told you last time is used some 11 times in this chapter. It's the word mega. This is a mega river. It is a great river. It is some 1,800 miles long, by the way. It flows from the north 
in the mountains to the north in Turkey. By the way, its headwaters are right there, interestingly enough, at Mount Ararat, where God caused the ark to settle to rest upon the earth. And it goes all the way down to the Arabian Sea. So it goes all the way from the north in Turkey, all the way down into the sea in the south. So in the Middle East, this is the great river. Just like the great river in Africa is the Nile, this is the great river in the Middle East, the Euphrates. And it has a twin river, by the way, in the Bible. That twin of it is called the Tigris. And both were the lifeblood of this area in ancient times. They were the very thing and the reason why the entire area north of Israel is called the Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamian area, why it was so, such a rich land for growth because of these two rivers. And this is the very area where God, most archaeologists believe God had the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden, these rivers flowed from it. And so it was not a desolate place. And this river plays an important role in God's plan and in God's promise to Israel. You say, why? Because the Euphrates identifies for Israel the eastern boundary of the land that God gave to them in the promise to Abraham. Now, I want to show you this, so I want to go back to the Old Testament just for a moment. I just want to look at a few passages. Go all the way back to Genesis first, chapter 15. I just want to show you this boundary that God set up in His promise for Israel. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18 God says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. What land? The land from the river of Egypt. What what river is that? That's the Nile. Its headwaters are down at the north end of Egypt. So from that southern point, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the way to the north, all the way to the east, the Then he defines the land by who's living there. All these different tribes in that land. I'm going to give you that land. And he uses the Euphrates as that eastern boundary. Now turn over to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is about the end of the land. And in verse 4. Uh, beginning in verse 3, every place on which your your sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses, God speaking with Joshua, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, that's where they are, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. What sea is that? West, that's where the sun sets, west of Israel. Mediterranean. So on the east, you have the eastern boundary, which is the Euphrates River. On the west, you have the Mediterranean. To the south, you have the land of Egypt, the Nile River, all the way north to where they are in this Lebanon, it says. So you have this grand area that God is giving to Israel. Go to back just to Deuteronomy. 
even when Moses was leading the land. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 7. God says to Moses, turn, verse 7, turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country and the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. You see God using that again as this boundary point for the east. So it's all part of God's promise. This grand land that God was promising to give to Israel. And the Euphrates River was the eastern boundary of that land that God gave to Israel. You can see it also again used again in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 24. I didn't turn there, but you'll find it there again mentioned the same way. And by the way, just for your own understanding and just for your own geopolitical understanding in the world today, Israel has never possessed the land as God promised. Never. Even as far back as Joshua leading them into the land and all the kings and everything else, they've never possessed the land as God promised to this day. But when Christ returns and rules for a thousand years, they will possess land. So the land that God gave to Israel went from the Mediterranean Sea to the west all the way up to the Euphrates River on the east and it would include what in our day is mostly under Arab possession today. Now you get a little understanding as to why there's so much difficulty over in the land of Israel. But not only was it a boundary line, it was also a protective border. In ancient days, it was a protection because of the difficulty of crossing such a large, ominous river with large forces. In fact, at some points, the river was known to be 38 or 3,600 feet across. That's 5,200 feet a mile. Three-quarters of a mile across. So in ancient days, it was a natural protection. And when judgment comes, when the tribulation hits, it certainly won't look like it did in ancient times or even does now. It's not going to look like that. You say, why? Because under the judgments, remember, under the previous judgments that will fall in rapid fashion, especially under the heat of the sun, all the ice caps that might be there in the glaciers and the mountains of Ararat are going to melt and flood that area, I think, with massive flooding that's going to take place. And even all of that fresh water will be turned to blood just when the springs are turned to blood so that the practical nature of crossing this river will be near impossible even by modern standards. And you're certainly not going to fly into Israel 200 million men. That's three quarters the size of the United States. It's not going to happen. And even modern bridges that might be across that during those flood times will be covered and even impassable. Besides the fact that the power grid will no longer work, It's dark. There's no power. Water is scarce at best. Even the floodwaters are toxic blood. There needs to be a way for the armies to come west. That's why it says in verse 12, its waters 
were dried up so that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. God is going to dry up the great river so that the armies from the east can assemble. And God, by His sovereignty, is using Antichrist and the calamities that are coming upon the earth in the day to make it happen. You say, so kings are coming from the east. What's east of the Euphrates? What's east of the Euphrates? Asia? China? Other countries like that? At least in our day, that's what they're called. The Greek literally says here in the original, the kings from the rising of the sun. The word is antole. A-N-A-T-O-L-E if you want to transliterate it. It means the sun rising in the east. That's what the word means. So when it says that the way from the the sun rising in the east, the kings coming from the sun rising in the east. So God dries up the, the Euphrates River so that the kings from the great empires from the east can come west. East today is India, China, Japan, whatever nations there will be at that time. God makes a way for them to come. And you say, well, why are they coming? Why? We know the what. The river's dried up. We know, we know the, the, the sense in, in this issue of, uh, of it's being prepared so that they, they might be prepared to come. But why? What's the, what's the means through which they're coming? And verses 13 through 14 tell us that. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Why are they coming? Because God is preparing for the great war. God is preparing for the war that will take place with the return of Jesus Christ. And God so providentially is orchestrating the events and the kings of the east to invade the country of the beast and his principal place of importance. The beast may even, by the way, I said this last time, he may even have established a political and economic capital in what was ancient Babylon, which was on the Euphrates, and rebuilt Babylon to a new city of political and economic strength. We're not told that. But you can maybe draw that inference from what we'll learn coming up in chapter 17 and 18 because the nations, when he is destroyed, the nations mourn because of the financial loss. You see that in chapter 18. But it is certain that the importance that would come from Antichrist around the globe for at least these three years, three and a half years, because he's the ultimate world ruler, would make this potential city that may be there the de facto capital of the world. Remember, God has already struck the religious capital. Remember that? His kingdom is darkened. That's the religious capital. 
we explained that last time. And now the Euphrates being dried up opens up the kingdom of Antichrist, a full invasion. And with the, the world falling apart, with all of these judgments coming in rapid fashion, the world reeling from all that God is allowing to unfold upon the earth because of His judgment, God is using the darkened thinking of Satan's desire to stir up the kings of the, of the world in the east against, I believe, Antichrist so that they'll come against him. You say, why do you say that? Because they are coming as agents of Satan himself. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are enlisted here, at least, under God's sovereign plan as the agents for these demons to go out and perform signs so that the nations will come. The nations believe, I think, they are acting as individual agents, but Satan is in all of it. In fact, verses 13 through 16 seem to indicate that Without this, without what we read here, we would be left to wonder exactly how all of this is going to take place. How is God going to get all the people there so that Christ can annihilate them in one final battle? How is that all going to happen? Without verses 13 through 16, we wouldn't know that. And yet here we see exactly how God is doing it. Satan is attempting to stop the return of Christ. Still, God is bringing it all together so that they are crushed by His mighty hand. This is an incredible event. And all of history, folks, has been moving and is moving toward that moment. All of history, everything you see, everything that unfolds, every little precursory step is all moving toward this very moment. God using the beast, God using the false prophet, God using even Satan himself to do his bidding. You say, well, that seems kind of strange. Does God do that? Well, you see that even back in the book of Job. Satan comes before God and tries to entice God to do something. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Okay, go ahead, Satan. Do whatever you want to Job, but you can't touch his life. Satan goes and does the bidding of God in hopes that Job will curse God and God knows that Job will not curse him. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God sustains us. Job would curse God if Job was on his own, but God sustains Job because God has saved Job. Job is a righteous, blameless man because God has made him that way. Satan once again is thwarted by the hand of God. And so God is moving all of this toward His end. And so through Satan and through the false prophet and through the beast, through their propaganda, their signs, it says, three unclean spirits go out and deception happens. It's kind of interesting, the description here. The unclean spirits are described here as frogs. I kind of liked frogs when I was a kid. Frogs are not likable animals in the Bible. They are unclean, Levitically, in the Old Testament. They are an abomination, in fact, in the Old Testament. And the only other place, by the way, that you see frogs in all of the entire Bible, besides here in Revelation chapter 16, is in the second plague upon Egypt. When God brings the plague upon Egypt to deliver Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. 
So this is the worst. And from these leaders come deceptive statements, apparently. Speeches, signs go out worldwide. I don't know how it's going to happen. With the advent of social media, even in our day, word can spread like wildfire across the globe. Maybe that's how it's going to happen. I don't know. Some here will, will, or these, these demons will be energizing the world with their words. They will elicit this great upsurge in the armies from the east and they will come to Israel for war. Some, I'm sure, have been gathered to destroy the beast. After all, the beast is the world power and things aren't going so well. And I think those from the east are coming to to see if they can come upon the beast and destroy the beast. They've gathered together. Others, I think, will be there to defend the beast. Maybe those from the west. I'm not sure. It doesn't say that, but possibly that's what's taking place. But everyone who does come will understand, albeit too late, far too late, in fact, that they are simply the puppets of Satan in war against God. They have, in fact, been gathered Verse 14 says, for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. By the way, um, I know we typically refer to it as this, but verse 16 clearly shows us that this isn't really called the Battle of Armageddon. Rather, Armageddon is simply the gathering place. It's the gathering place for a war that is a war by another name. It is a war of the day of God, the Almighty. This is war of the great day of God. And when Christ returns as King of kings and Lord of lords, just turn over to chapter 19 for a moment. When Christ returns, He's going to bring complete destruction to all of these armies, and the final outcome will be that all the birds of the earth feast upon the bodies of the dead. And that feast is called the Great Supper of God. Look at verse 16. When Christ comes of chapter 19, and on his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. Then again you read verse 20, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the size in his presence and which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped in his image. And these two were thrown into the lake that of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came out from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. You talk about a supper. Is it any wonder When you go back to Revelation chapter 16, is it any wonder that right in the middle of these words, 
all of this description of horrific judgment that is to come and this gathering of the armies to fight against God himself, is it any wonder that in all of this, the Spirit of God has John write the words of verse 15? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. You see, while the nations themselves are, are poised on each other, while they're bent at the destruction, Christ comes and He comes like a thief and He will take the world back by surprise. It'll be unannounced, unexpected. The warning here is to be ready. That's the warning. I've said it before, folks. This isn't fantasy. This is real. Several years ago, living in California, we had a lot of earthquakes. And I remember hearing and reading stories of men caught in earthquakes, people caught in earthquakes who had been sleeping in their beds and sleeping without clothes. And when the earth shook, they got up and ran out as if they, because they were so crazed and so didn't know what was happening. And the next thing they know, they're outside with nothing on. And people are looking at them in wonder. This is the picture. It's just the picture. It's unexpected. It's unannounced. Under the sixth bowl, God providentially brings the world's armies together in one place to the land of Israel so that Christ might destroy them. And by the way, I don't believe Armageddon simply is the valley of Megiddo. I think the reality is it's from north to south, this war will be going on with the focus on Jerusalem itself because that is where Christ is going to return. Satan is opposing Christ. But Christ has already won the day. And so verse, or under the sixth bowl, the beast's power is disclosed. And then comes bowl seven. Notice. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from among the thrones saying, It is done. It is done. And from there, flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, a great earthquake. The great city is split into three parts. Babylon is remembered. The islands flood away. The mountains are not found. Huge hailstones come down from the sky upon men. The beast's capital is now destroyed. Right here in verses 17 to 21, we get a bird's eye view of what's taking place. We get a view from heaven as the the judgment is poured out. But in chapter 17 and 18, we'll get more detail on the very interaction of all of this. The seventh bowl finishes God's wrath on man in this present earth as we know it. After this, Jesus comes. After this, Jesus is ruling on the earth for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. This is the point we've anticipated all along at least up to this point, and now it's going to come. And it's worse than anything that's ever happened 
in any of the earlier judgments, it's more devastating than anything under the sixth seal, even when men were crying for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. This is the worst human calamity in the history of the world. Verse 17 says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. Air, that's the atmosphere. The atmosphere encircles the globe. We understand that. And here, the entire atmosphere, all that encircles the globe in which the earth exists is affected by this very judgment. And there are cataclysmic changes that must happen in the atmosphere. Why? Because what else is going to produce 100-pound blocks of ice falling out of the sky? The word 100 pounds, that's, that's an English translation for the amount a normal man could carry. So it varies, somewhere between 80 to 150 pounds. And, and the translators here put 100 pounds because that's typically somewhere in between that. And a voice comes out of the temple. God himself, God on the throne, from the throne saying, it is done. Within this judgment... With this judgment, the very wrath of God is finished. And I love that because just like at Calvary, when it was finished, God punctuated it with an earthquake. So here the same thing is going on. Only this earthquake is going to be not local like it was at Calvary. This earthquake is going to be worldwide and it's going to remake the earth going to remake it for the rule of Jesus Christ as he reigns on earth. Notice verse 19 and 20, and the great city was split into three parts. You say, well, what's the great city? What is he referring to? Go back to chapter 11 and verse 8. And there dead bodies will lie in the street. Who's the dead bodies? The two witnesses who the Antichrist has killed. Remember, this is when the people say, who can come against the Antichrist? He's the most powerful. Who's going to ever come against him? He, their bodies lay in the street of what? Of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus Christ crucified? Jerusalem. Outside the gates of Jerusalem, he was crucified there. And so when you get to chapter 16 and you read the great city was split into three parts, he's talking about Jerusalem. Jesus Christ has prophesied to come back just as he left. He ascended into heaven. He will descend from heaven in the same way. And he will touch down on earth on Mount um, on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron book from the city of Jerusalem. And when he touches down, that city will be split. Go over to that city today, you'll notice that the Arabs have closed up the walls of the old city of Jerusalem on that side. They've closed up those walls and they've built cemeteries there because they believe that Christ would never come through a cemetery. <laughs> what foolishness to even think that this would even hinder God at all. Verse 19 through 20 says there will be this great earthquake. 
great earthquake in such a way that every island will flee away and every mountain will not be found. No, I've been in earthquakes. I remember them as a kid. I remember them as an adult. My wife and I actually used to oftentimes quickly pray Psalm 46, 1, when earthquakes would happen. Though the earth shake, though the mountains quake, we will not fear God because God is our refuge. But you can always tell native Californians when earthquakes happen. Debbie and I have talked about this. Her son lived out there for a time. You can always tell the native Californians, you know why? Because when an earthquake happens, we always try to guess what the magnitude was. Oh, I think that was a 6.5 on the Richter scale. Everybody else is running for cover. The Californians go, oh, I think I got that one down. But no one's going to be able to do that when this strikes. No one. No one in the entire world will ever have felt or seen the effects of this kind of seismos. That's what the word for earthquake here is, seismos. This will be so great that Jerusalem will be split into three parts. And cities of the world will fall, right? Cities of the nations fell. Cities around the globe just just crumble under the, the shaking of the earth's surface and every island and every mountain is gone now just think about that for a moment i mean we understand these words in our english language we we hear these words but but none of us can fathom it i mean just look out your 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 car window as you're driving up 93 and look at the mountains and say okay imagine all of that flattened Gone. Think of the highest mountain on this earth, Mount Everest. Gone. 29,000 feet into the sky. All of a sudden, it's gone. The entire nation of Australia, because it's an island, gone. Every mountain gone, every island gone, and then massive hailstones from the sky begin to fall. No place to hide. Nowhere to run, nothing left but suffering and death. Huge hailstones come down from heaven upon men. And it isn't it amazing how tortured humanity still maintains its hard heart. And men blasphemed God. In our arrogance, in our Self-prideful stupidity, we believe at times, even in our own self today, that signs and wonders are going to convince people if they just see some sign, if they just see some wonder, they're going to be converted and we need to think again. Just like Jesus said when He told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, listen, they have the law and the prophets. They have the Word of God already. The people already have what they need. They have the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If anyone would just go to God and trust God and believe God, they would be saved. But man does not do that, even if someone Jesus said, would rise from the dead, they will not believe. Listen, if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if the words of God concerning His Son do not convince people, listen, you can pelt them like this with hundred pound hail and they still will not come to God. 
the word of the world is against God. It is committed to its devotion to blaspheming God. Why? Because Romans 1 says it rejects the truth. It suppresses the truth in its own unrighteousness and becomes futile in its own thinking. So listen, this is where the world is headed. This is where it's going. It's not going to get any better. Nobody can prevent it. Governments won't be able to stop it. Negotiations and diplomatic interactions are not going to be able to stop it. This is where the world is going. The question here is, and I think the impetus behind all this is, for for those who don't know Christ, is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? You see, we can't prevent this, but we certainly can escape it. Why? Why can we escape it? Because... The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath to come. Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath of God that we store up upon ourselves if we don't know Jesus Christ. He came to deliver us from the wrath on sinners like us. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, it isn't there is at some time, somewhere in the future, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that now carries us all the way into eternity forever and ever and ever who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, if we know Jesus Christ by faith as our, as our Savior, then we will never experience wrath in any form. Why? Because of the hill called Calvary where Jesus paid it all. You see, the world rejects Him. And the world, because of their rejection of Him, will experience eternal wrath. And many will experience this tribulational wrath. God is a God who hates sin. We know that. And when His grace is exhausted, when His mercy is mocked, He will act in judgment. How grateful... We can be that if we know Christ, our sins were judged in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. How grateful we can be for that. But if you're still refusing Christ, then you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So our plea to you today is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, these final two judgments are so severe we want to look away. Your judgment is no laughing matter. There's 
not small, it is great. But there is grace greater than our sin. Jesus Christ, and what you accomplished on Calvary can be the very reality of those who have rejected you if they will simply believe. You have called each one to repent of sin and believe upon Jesus Christ. Your word is unchanging. Your word will not be adjusted. And all that we see happening even in our day and age is coming to this final end. We don't know when that is. We don't know all the details of the timing of this. In fact, you told us not even to look for that time. You told us just to be ready. And you told us to go and to share the gospel of all whom we see, all who we know, anyone and everyone, so that they might hear the truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. Lord, we pray that anybody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ would be shaken in their very heart to have to stand before a holy God and answer for their life because their life will not stand under His judgment. Psalm 1 tells us that only the righteous will stand and mankind can only be righteous through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that they would repent of sin and come to Christ. And we thank You for granting us who know Christ's faith that we too could believe in Jesus Christ and know eternal salvation forever and be saved from the wrath to come. Thank you for that grace. Allow that to be the motivator in us, to be the instruments in your hand and a conduit for the gospel of, of Jesus Christ to others who do not know you. This we pray. Because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we love and in whom we are saved. All God's people said, Amen.